Marcelo. Hey everybody, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Kai Rosdahl. Thanks for being here on this Tuesday. It's the 26th of September. It being a Tuesday means we're only doing one topic today. The topic of the week, I suppose, uh, and maybe the next uh, who knows how long is a government shutdown. And more to our point, the absolutely shattered federal budgeting process. Right, because there is a process. It just <laughs> That's what you say. <laughs> In theory, there's a process. It's just so far gone. Anyway, we want to get into how it's supposed to work, why it often breaks down, and what, if anything, there is to do about it. So here to make us smart about all this is Molly Reynolds, a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. Molly, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So first, let me put you on the spot. Uh, Do you think we're going to have a deal in time at this point? I mean, we're having this conversation on Tuesday. The closer we get to Saturday, uh, the bigger the challenge of the clock itself um, uh, becomes. Uh, And uh, we've already reached a point where everything has to go really smoothly in the Senate um, for the Senate to be able to clear something by the end of the week. Um, So we'll see. But um, obviously, as the deadline gets closer, a solution gets harder. (laughs) <laughs> that was very diplomatic. <laughs> so, so yes to all that, and I want to come back to it, but but I want to back up for a minute, and just on that little joke that Kimberly and I had in, in the introduction, how long has the federal budget process been as boogered up as it is? So, uh, the federal budget process as kind of currently articulated, how it's currently supposed to work, is a about to celebrate its 50th birthday, um, wow. is uh, codified in a law passed in 1974. Um, and since then, it's worked okay in some years, but has never really worked great. Um, right now, uh, and over the past several years, we've seen uh, it be particularly dysfunctional. Um, so we've had these repeated episodes of um, either actually shutting down the government. The last time that happened was um, for 36 days at the end of 2018 and 2019, or even just flirting with shutdowns. And that alone is really costly. Um, If the government, uh, federal agencies think there might be a shutdown, they have to spend a lot of time and resources getting ready for the possibility of a shutdown. And that's time and resources not spent doing other things. So, how is this process as, you know, as of 50 years ago um, and now, how is it supposed to work? What is actually supposed to happen? Sure. So from Congress's perspective, the first thing that Congress is supposed to do every year in the spring um, is adopt something called the concurrent resolution on the budget. But you should really think about that as um, sort of Congress deciding how big the pie should be. Um, There's some federal spending that's controlled through this annual appropriations process, this process that needs to happen every year, spending on things like the Defense Department, um, on some uh, nutrition assistance programs, on scientific research, on K-12 education. That funding um, is uh, needs Congress to act every year, and they're supposed to, in the spring, sit down and decide how big is that pie going to be. And then over the course of the spring and early summer, they're supposed to um, take up 12 separate bills that um, 
constitute sort of pieces of that pie. So once you've decided how big the pie is going to be, you have to divide it up into 12 pieces. Um, and all of those pieces are supposed to be finished um, on their own by October 1st, which is when the new federal fiscal year starts. So those 12 different appropriations bills are supposed to be written, go through committee, get voted on in committee, go to the floor, be voted on the floor, pass through the House, go to the Senate, Senate gives their okay after their process, passes through Congress, then be signed by the President of the United States by October 1st. That's the process, right? <laughs> that's what it's supposed to look like. I, I, I think that's okay. what's called regular order, right? Regular that order, is, which was the yep. deal that McCarthy made right. w in order to get into right. speakership, that he was going to go through regular order. Okay, done. Go ahead. So we know that government shutdowns are wasteful and just the dumbest possible way other than the debt limit to run the biggest economy in the world. But but what are the there are inefficiencies that come with this budgeting process, too. Right. Could you talk about those for a little while? Sure. So um, when. Congress fails to finish work on its appropriations bills um, by the time that the new fiscal year is supposed to start. The kind of first uh, type of inefficiency is what I was talking about before in terms of agencies having to plan for a shutdown. So um, I'm in Washington, all around this town right now, there are folks at agencies sitting down and saying, okay, if Congress doesn't act by Saturday night, uh, what of our operations need to stop because they no longer have appropriations that will fund them. What of the things that don't have appropriations anymore are accepted uh, will continue because they protect life, property, um, that sort of thing. That's a costly process. Someone is having to make all of those decisions, tell all of the federal workers um, what those decisions are, um, put plans in place to wind down federal operations um, uh, in the event of a shutdown. And so that's costly, even if Congress comes to like a last minute deal late on Saturday night, all that work will have um, will have gone in. And then let's say we actually have a shutdown. Um, that's also really costly for federal agencies. Um, in many cases, um, the it's not just that um, uh, agencies have to stop doing activities uh, and then those the consequences of which flow on to the people who actually benefit from things like nutrition assistance programs, um, all the way up to people wanting to visit national parks that might be closed. Uh, starting the government back up um, is, a, is a use of resources once Congress has acted. Um, and even if Congress does manage to avert a shutdown with a temporary spending bill, that introduces a lot of uncertainty for agencies. Um, agencies usually can't start new activities when they're under a temporary spending bill. They often can't hire new employees. Um, once Congress does finish its work, they have less time to spend the money that Congress has given them. Often contracts get more expensive, all kinds of things that are just not the sort of efficient ways that we would hope the federal government would be operating. Okay, so we know that this doesn't work, and it has not worked <laughs> well for a very long time. Mm -hmm. What what are the other options? Right. And I mean, there have been suggestions for things like automatic continuing resolutions, those temporary spending bills you were talking about, biennial budgeting. Um, are these viable solutions, and do they have a chance? <laughs> 
So I think it's really important to remember that fundamentally, um, this is not a problem of the budget process itself. There probably are things we could do to make it work a little bit better. Um, You mentioned various forms of biennial budgeting, which would mean doing some or all of these steps um, every two years instead of every year. Um, I tend to think the first step, the sort of deciding how big the pie should be, that doing that every two years would probably be okay. And then making the decisions about how to divide up the pie every year um, would still retain the ability for the government to respond to changing needs. But fundamentally, this is a problem of politics. um, And it's not necessarily a problem of the process. Uh, And the way I like to think about this is there's some amount of political conflict that's going to happen in Congress. Um, And uh, you can kind of think of this like a game of whack-a-mole. You have this conflict and you start whacking down other moles because it's really hard to get things done. And there aren't other bills that are moving. So all of that conflict gets transferred to this annual appropriations process because it has to happen. And if it doesn't happen, so many important things that people depend on stop working. So once it's really the only mole left standing, it has to bear all of this conflict. And I think we see that now with the House Republicans, so much of their sort of internal angst um, and internal conflict between Kevin McCarthy and his detractors, Mm -hmm. that's getting transferred to this one specific fight. And that uh, dynamic uh, is both what means it doesn't work as well as it should, and also means that it has such big consequences for the American people. So sort of along those lines, I I have a two-part question. The first is, I'm sure you saw the news from Moody's on uh, whatever yesterday was, Monday, that statement they had, which says, and I just pulled it up so I could read it to you, uh, talking about, quote, the weakness of U.S. institutional and governance strength relative to other AAA-rated sovereigns that we have highlighted in recent years. So Moody's is not the only one to have pointed out the the weaknesses in American economic government, right, and and fiscal uh, government. So number one, do you agree that that's actually a serious problem for this country? And number two, are there any other countries that do this the way we do this? Yeah, so um, I do think it's a, I think the struggles that Congress faces to complete some of this these basic responsibilities of governing in terms of keeping um, federal operations open, keeping them running in a timely fashion in a way that minimizes uncertainty for all of those folks who actually have to uh, spend the money and then for all of the people around the country who depend on um, federal resources. Mm -hmm. I do think that's uh, sort of a major um, a major threat to um, to the health of um, of our economy and our democracy more um, more generally. And 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 then are there other countries that do it the same way we do it? Um, so I think uh, I don't know. I'm not an expert in mm, uh, right. in other countries. Um, but I think that one of the uh, when we compare the U.S. to other countries, um, one of the important things to remember is that our separation of powers system bakes into it the possibility of divided party control in a way that you don't have in a parliamentary system. Right. So in a parliamentary system where um, you know someone has a, a majority and uh, one of the parties or a coalition of parties, and there's a prime minister, um, there's they're sort of all uh, by default rowing in the same direction in a way that our constitutional system creates opportunities uh, for that not to happen, for us to have one party control one or both chambers of Congress while another party controls the White House. And so, again, when you have as much kind of partisan political conflict as we do, and you have that power divided across the parties, um, across the institutions, 
this annual spending process can become a place where this conflict gets fought. Right. So given the Congress we have <laughs> and the politicians <laughs> that we have, what can change so it doesn't feel like there's always a shutdown around the corner? Like what can be done with what we got? Yeah. So um, we're talking before about this possibility of um, sort of trying to make fewer decisions or set Congress up to make uh, have to make fewer decisions. Um, one way to do that would be um, to sorry, again I just make have this to pause for a second. That the answer to the problem with Congress is to give Congress fewer decisions. Yeah, <laughs> like that's crazy. wild. So I think, um, no, it's fine. I think one of the, and when we look at times in the recent past, when, say, the last decade, when this process actually has worked a little bit better um, than other times, one of the things that we've seen is Congress um, packaging together a couple of these um, individual appropriations bills into um, multi-bill packages. So, it has become very um, popular, particularly on the right, to decry um, the omnibus appropriations bill, the one big mm -hmm. bill that takes all 12 bills together um, and passes them all at once. Um, and that's really how Congress has often managed to complete this work um, in the last um, in the last decade or so. But a couple of times Congress has said, OK, instead of doing all of these things at once, we're going to take two of these bills together or three of these bills together. And we're going to um, sort of write them in committee and then we're going to bring them, them to the floor in small multi-bill packages. And that allows us to really log roll across interests. And so, um, say, take the defense bill and the bill that funds operations at the Departments of Labor, Health and Human Services and Education and put them together. And then you get folks who really care about defense and you get folks who really care about those other domestic programs. You build a coalition across those interests and you get those bills across the finish line together. Um, and I think that something like that um, really helps optimize um, under our current political conditions. It retains the parts of the process where the folks who are on the appropriations committees in both chambers really dig into the material. They're really experts in the agencies that their um, parts of the appropriations committees oversee. They really work on the details. And then it's that last step uh, that's more structured in a way uh, for Congress to to really function amid the polarization that it faces. So minibus is better than omnibus. Uh, I think so. Um, and I think it I think it um, really, again, starts from this premise, as you did, Kimberly, of saying this is what we have. Like, these are the politicians mm -hmm. we have. This is the partisan conflict that we have. How do we retain the parts of the process that still work um, somewhat well, which is the the parts in the committee where the, where the members who are really expert in, in these areas dig into the material? Um, and how do we pair that with an acknowledgement of the real challenges of building coalitions on the floor. Hmm. All right. Molly Reynolds, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. Thank you so much and uh, enjoy the rest of your week as much as you can. Molly, thanks a lot. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I hope you two do the same. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm glad she highlighted the sort of expertise that lives in right. some of these committees, right. which I think it's very easy to look at the talking heads and, and the actual representatives in Congress and, you know, 
see the political theater. But behind them and on these various committees are people who have spent years, decades, really learning this stuff. And, you know, just to go back down my deep nerd rabbit hole, in addition to the wonders of the Federal Register, if you ever have some time to look at the Congressional Research Service, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it is uh, an amazing library of documents written by some of the people who know so much about this stuff. It's available to the public. But there are teams of researchers working for Congress and effectively for us you know, pulling together all this information to hopefully help um, our elected leaders make better decisions. And so there are people who think very seriously about these things behind the scenes. It's a great point. Key point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, let us know what you all think about the federal budget process. Uh, If you have a suggestion for how we might be able to do it better, given what we got, our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. You can also email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org. And we will be right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. All right. uh, News. Kimberly, you go first because you've got actual news. Mine is more of a rant. So, you know. (laughs) Kind of love a good rant. So my news is that today the FTC, along with 17 uh, state attorneys general, sued Amazon uh, for illegally maintaining monopoly power. They accused Amazon of that. Obviously, Amazon says, no, that's not the case. Um, It's uh, going to be a really big test case for um, the FTC and Lena Khan's sort of new interpretation Mm-hmm. of what a monopoly is. So historically, uh, a monopoly by government definitions is a company that controls the whole market and uses that to harm consumers and raise prices. And the, and you see, you can demonstrate the harm by prices being too high or higher than they would otherwise be. And, you know, 
the FTC is making a a slightly different argument. And I'm just going to read from from their announcement. The complaint alleges that Amazon violates the law not because it is big, but because it engages in a course of exclusionary conduct that prevents current competitors from growing and new competitors from emerging by stifling competition on price, product selection, quality and by preventing its current or future rivals from attracting a critical mass of shoppers and sellers, Amazon ensures that no current or future rival can threaten its dominance. That's a pretty complicated Mm -hmm. argument to sell. Um, (laughs) Sell. Didn't even mean to do that. But um, they're laying out things like, you know, Amazon making it really difficult for companies that sell its products products on the platform to sell the products more cheaply elsewhere, which raises, they argue, raises prices overall. They're arguing that, you know, Amazon, in order to use like the prime service, you have to pay these additional fees. But if you don't pay the additional fees for the prime, you end up getting like reduced down in the rankings and it's harder for customers to find your products. A whole variety of things. And this is such a huge player and such a big part of the economy. And some of these monopoly cases that Lena Khan has been going for over at the FTC have not been going so well. Um, And so it will be very fascinating to see how this goes. She's got 17 states behind her on this one, arguing kind of the old Walmart argument that when this big player comes in, it stifles local small businesses and their ability to operate um, and and to compete. And it will be very... The Amazon has turned over a lot of documents and data um, ahead of this, you know, lawsuit as, as part of discovery and things like that. So I think we'll be learning a lot more about how this company operates and whether or not the United States is going to have to adjust its legal understanding of what counts as a monopoly these days. So to that point, uh, number one, uh, yes to everything you said. Number two, uh, this will not be solved tomorrow. This case is going to drag on for years. Years. Number three, uh, it it behooves people to remember that Lena Khan made her name as an antitrust mm-hmm. lawyer while in law school with a paper called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox, arguing that the way the courts have interpreted antitrust is too narrow. And so what she's been trying to do is broaden it out with mixed results so far in the two-ish years she's been uh, at the FTC. So this is there, there's a lot on the line here besides just what happens with this case. Yep. Yeah. And... Yeah. yeah. Agreed. Uh, All right. Okay. Yours? So here's my rant. Uh, it's a headline in Axios, which is a a, uh, a news source, very Washington-focused, policy-focused, and, and a little gossipy, too. And here's a headline in their piece today, and it, it made me a little crazy. And it says, Scoop, Biden teams don't let him trip mission. And it talks about how the president, who is 80 years old and who I am on the record as saying probably should not have run for the aforementioned age. He's working with a physical therapist, doing exercises to improve his balance. He's been wearing tennis shoes more often since his stumble back in June to avoid slipping. He's using the short stairs on Air Force One because the man is 80 years old. Yes to all of that. Here's my question. Where, oh, where, oh, where is the Axios scoop headline that says, Donald Trump is incoherent and a danger to the republic. <laughs> That's it. That's my rant. I think that is not going to happen. Because why? 
Sorry, I know the answer. I know, I know the answer to that. You don't have to answer it. But come on. The media blew it in 2020 and it blew it in 2016 and we're blowing it again. So I I agree that that there's definitely a disparity there. But it re- when I saw that you put this link in, it reminded me of this um, opinion piece, a guest essay in the New York Times yesterday by... Brian Butler, I guess, who writes... Yeah, used, uh, to, be, used writes... to be at uh, Crooked Media with the Pod Save America bros. Right. And the the headline is, the Democratic Party has an old problem and won't admit it. Yeah, And sure. he goes on to talk about how the Democrats are actually quite different from the Republicans in allowing their leaders... Um, in the House, the Senate, and the White House to continue on in their mm-hmm, roles mm-hmm. and not necessarily cycle leadership for folks of different generations mm-hmm. um, in the way that Republicans have. And that Republicans, with the outlier of Donald Trump, who one could really argue at least the establishment political leaders in the Republican prob- Party probably don't love too much, um, with the outlier of Donald Trump, they have swapped out their House speakers. They have swapped out, you know, people who are running their campaigns and the committees and like the RNC and things like that in a way that the Democrats have not. Um, you know, so, oh, I don't know, although Mitch, Mitch McConnell still well, exists. Well, there, there is McConnell. Um, <laughs> so, so, I would, so yes to all of that, except the last two Republican speakers threw up their hands and walked away because there was such a fra- – the, the Republican caucus conference, sorry, mm-hmm. is, is a fractious mob, right? And, and they couldn't – they literally could not govern. And, and I, I, I guess I, – I don't know. I mean, look, I, I know this is me spitting into the wind, but it's it's actually crazy making. And I think it does journalism a grave disservice to to create false equivalencies like the one that this headline presents. That's what I got. Okie OK, wait, one more thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there may be those listeners, some of whom may or may not be my boss, because I honestly don't know if they listen. I hope they do. But who knows? Because life is busy. Uh, who may object to me taking what they might perceive, not my bosses probably because they know me, as a partisan mm. slant on that particular story, right? Um, mm. I, I, I will not uh, suffer for being called partisan in defense of democracy. Full stop. Yeah. And, and we can, sorry, one more thing. And we, mm. by, by which I mean not you and me, but me and my bosses or me and listeners can have that conversation. But it, it's not a negotiable thing. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was going to agree that there are are some things that we we I don't feel like <laughs> there are people who will say that we are biased for saying certain things, but if you there have to be some lines, mm-hmm. right? There has to be I, I will say out loud that I believe that trans people have a right to exist. <laughs> you know? Not, yeah. I will say out loud yeah. that Attacking the Capitol because you don't like the outcome of the election is a bad thing. (laughs) I will say out loud the disenfranchising voters because you know that when voter turnout is higher, you're going to lose is a bad thing. And I think there is a way for us to have these conversations honestly about you know, where we stand. (laughs) And, And I do believe that that's actually transparent and important for journalists to be open about 
where we're coming from and how we see the world, we, we can still extend respect and an opportunity to listen and hear the perspectives of those who disagree with us. But I also don't have to platform someone who says climate change isn't happening right. or human right. caused climate change right. isn't happening, right. you know. And so I think we that's kind of part of the job is to navigate those challenging conversations and and also to sort of stand up at some point. Yeah. I, the classic example I always use is that people called Ida B. Wells a radical journalist for right. saying that lynching black people was a right. bad thing to do. So right. <laughs> I'm not going to be mad if you tell me I'm biased because I say attacking the Capitol and, and the person who encouraged them to do that, Donald Trump, that's not a good thing. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's it for the news. Let's do the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. So along those lines, uh, we talked last week, Kimberly and I did, uh, about uh, Congress and the state of politics and what's happening in this democracy. And here's one of the letters and emails we got. This is Kim in San Francisco Bay Area. I was really delighted at the conversation that the two of you had about Congress and norms and upsetting those norms. And it made me hearken back to the early aughts when marriage equality was booming. As a lesbian, I was really torn between do I need to be married in order to feel validated or is it the system of marriage that needs to change? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I did get married because the system isn't changing anytime soon. And I really wanted those protections for me and my spouse and the rest of my family. But it's the same situation to me as, is this something that we'll ever be able to change without a large volume uprising of change? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's it right That's there. It. Yes. What yeah. she said. I'm going to leave it because that she she encapsulated that mm -hmm. perfectly. But before we go, um, we are going to leave you with what we always leave you with, the answer to the make me smart question, which is what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? And this week's answer comes from Bill in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Something I thought I knew that I later found out I was wrong about. I thought UC Berkeley and Cal were two different schools. <laughs> if you watch college sports... Mm. You may see the Pac-12 for now, Cal yeah. Bears take the field. Yeah. When people talk academics, they talk about UC Berkeley and how great of a school that is, the That's flagship true. of the UC schools. When talking sports, no one says UC Berkeley. And talking That's in true. academics, no one calls the school Cal. It wasn't until I visited the campus for my sister's graduation that I saw Cal flags flying and realized that Cal and Berkeley are the same school. Totally true. Ethan Lindsay, that one's for you, pal, if you happen to listen to this podcast. Former marketplace is, is guy. That, is that Cal State when they say Cal no, State? Is no, that no, no, no. Cal. That's different. Yes, Cal. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't understand. Okay, so there are three, in, in 45 seconds or less, in the state of California and some other states, I, I imagine, there are three levels of public mm -hmm. education. The community colleges, the city colleges, mm -hmm. right? The California mm -hmm. State University System, and then the University mm -hmm. of California System. So Cal State is part of the California yeah, the State University. Also. Right. So Cal State, there's Cal State LA and Cal State, uh, many other cities, right? And then there is... 
the University of California system, UCLA, UC Berkeley, UC Merced, right? So that's the way it goes. So they're, Cal State and Cal are not the same thing. But it's very interesting, this whole academic versus, versus athletic distinction. Totally. I totally get that. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> anyway. anyway. And, and we should yeah. say, by the way, and thank you to Courtney who probably put this in the prep, um, Cal or the University of California, Berkeley, they're working to change that misconception. They're actually working on a rebranding campaign. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> um, also, also, what took them so long, man? It's been that way for a very long time. Anyway. Okay. All right, we're done. Out of here is what we are. Uh, send us your answer to the Make Me Smart question. Maybe it will uh, teach us all a little something. Don't know. Our phone number is 508-827-6278. 508-U-B-S-M-A-R-T is how you get to us. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by Jake Cherry with mixing by Becca Weinman. Our intern is Neil Farshabandi. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcast. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital and on demand. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. And I'm sure all those people listen, by the way. I, I was just kidding. I'm sure they listen. <laughs> We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending, like, all my tips. I was definitely spending, like, $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.